Hey, podcast listeners, welcome to episode 14 of Misfits. This is where I speak to the rebels, the troublemakers, and the unconventionals in Singapore. Try to see things as how they see it and learn from them. Some of these individuals include Daniel Ong, who started a million dollar cupcake empire, Danny Ung, who won the Grand Beatbox Battle Championship twice in a row. Agent Tan, the author of the Teenage Textbook, and a whole lot more. And today on the show, we have Quack Xiaoyin, the co-founder and creative director of the Thought Collective, comprising of various companies, the School of Thought, which offers tuition for the general paper and language arts, Food for Thought, a socially ethical restaurant chain, and Ting Tang, a branding and content curation company. She's also a two-term nominated member of parliament who was appointed by the president. In this conversation, we spoke about the caveats of the advice on following a passion, the approach of teaching at the School of Thought, a good teacher versus a great teacher, experiences as a nominated member of parliament, and much, much more. So what I really admired about Xiaoyin is that she wears many hats and has redefined herself on multiple occasions, you know, from an architecture student to a designer, creative director, teacher, writer, and a restaurant owner or restaurant chain owner to a nominated member of parliament. And now she's a mom. So some of this business that she dabbled in is extremely hard to succeed. But here she is. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation. So I'm really wonderfully surprised that, you know, when I start uh, researching on you, the, the work that you have done, and every single one of these things, I for me, I feel that it sort of redefine what things are. You know, with, G, uh, with um, School of Thought, you sort of look at teaching GP, but it's not just about the marks. And with the restaurant, it's not just about serving food. There's something behind all that. And not if only that, you're on your second term, of uh, in, as an MMP, and I was just like, wow, this person just do way too much things. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> On a daily basis, how does she keep up? I don't know. I need to stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess my first question to you is mm. that if someone would have come up to you at an event yes. and ask you, now, what do you do? You know, how will you answer that? Oh, I always say it's complicated. <laughs> and it's like really, the Facebook relationship status it actually really depends on who is asking the question mm-hmm. and then I will give them the part of my I suppose resume that make, will make the most sense to them right so you, what, what if you don't have a, a you don't know the person uh, then I generally default to I'm a creative okay yeah and then if the person would dig a bit more, then, then depends on... Then they'll realize what I mean by I'm a creative. <laughs> a complicated creative. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yeah. to give some context, you know, maybe you want to give a, like a quick three-minute summary of your adolescence years uh, mm-hmm. until the point where you started, you went into architecture school. Oh, um, I, I think my childhood was, I guess, a pretty regular Singaporean childhood and there wasn't anything exceptional about it. I was, uh, I think I was more on the introverted side. I, I was a comics geek, so I basically spent my school years either studying uh, for, my, for my exams, doing homework and reading a lot of comics. So I was classic geek. Then yeah, not, not, not much of a sports or right. even an arts person. Up till the point where... Pretty much... Whole way. 
whole way. Oh wow! Yeah, pretty much the whole. What way. comics were you reading back then? Oh, um, well, I I was reading like eighties X Men. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, so. re- really the good kind of comics. Yeah, yeah. No, so yeah, so I, I grew up with classic classic good comics. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Mm. And then and then you went to uh, RI. Uh yeah, I went to I went to RJC, mm-hmm. um, and then I went to NUS. NUS. Yeah. To do architecture, right? Yes, that's right. So, I mean, I, I know now what you have done is totally like 180 from what you study. You know, mm-hmm. would you say that any of your knowledge in the four years, is that four years, right? In architecture study, or is it less? Um, it was about there. Yeah. About there. Mm. That you still currently hold useful to your current pursuit? Uh, it, it's probably hard to nail down what influence architecture had. Mm-hmm. Um, I think architecture's greatest influence is probably on the way I think. It's a very conceptual. Uh, it's a very conceptual school of thought. Um, so I, I think there was some influence there. How would you say if you were to take a step at describing the way you think at coming up ideas or that's linked sort? to architecture? Correct. Uh, well, architecture school is all about the concept. So I guess that reinforced a lot of the way I think through all projects and all forms of work that I do now. It's always about the why. Right, well, why, why is it like that? Conceptually, is this true to the original intention? Wow. Yeah, so, so that's very architectural thing. Is it? I no, guess. no, I, 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 yeah. I, I do not know uh, anything. I mean, I'm on the deep end of the ignorance pool over here with uh-huh. regards to architecture. Okay. I mean, for me, like, mm. it's squares and circles and triangles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I went, when I went into architecture school, um, I didn't have much of a portfolio of anything. Uh, my... My idea of drawing a house was the classic like primary school triangle and square and yeah, square on door kind of thing. Yeah. Did you enjoy your time back in architecture school? I did. Um, architecture school was like a big, long slumber party, I think. Oh, wow. oh because we, we, we slept in school all the time. Okay. Yeah, oh, we, okay. we were That's working. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, not, not, not slumber <laughs> party as in it was very easy and fun. It was hard work. Uh, but it was, yeah, it, it was a very... I think it was a very good experience in intensity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're designing all the time to the point that you don't really go home. You just sleep under your table. You get up the next day and then you, you design some more. So uh, I always uh, used to think that I learned the habit of not sleeping very much uh, from architecture school. And, and that was a habit I kept throughout my 20s, but then towards my 30s, um, I decided sleep was more so, important. What, <laughs> <laughs> so what, what, what's, your, what's, your, what's your rule on sleep these days? Uh, I don't have a rule. I just sleep when I'm tired. Okay. So I, I think I get a good seven, seven eight hours sleep. Mm. Yeah. But no, I me, can survive on five, six. Right. No, these days I actually try not to set an alarm clock and then not try to do eight hours. And your body just wake up. It's like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I know you spoke about, you know, coming out of architecture school and, you know, mm. The no, your no list, I call mm. it, yep. was just being caught shoes, fluorescent mm. light, and cubicle. Oh yeah, God no. Uh. <laughs> How's your no list looking these days? I think it's... They grew? Uh, the, the, those original things are still there. I don't think I can thrive in a classic office environment. Um, no. Well, I, I guess my, my no list would have developed further. I think I know what is the real intention behind the no court shoes, no cubicles kind of rule. Uh, those are just the outward expression of what I will say no to. I think saying no means... I think saying no to things I don't believe in and things that don't fit right. 
and and that will change over seasons of time. Yeah. So I would say, um, if an organization was a very good fit, and I believed in the purpose very much, and let's say I decided to drop everything I'm doing now and join this particular organization, if it had fluorescent lights and cubicle, I would take the hit because okay. that's not the because the form is maybe not as important. Right, it's yes. an expression of the reason why. Yeah, I mean, I'll probably want to turn the cubicle uh, and, <laughs> <laughs> and work in some rules in my contract that, that I can push the rules a bit. A bit. But, but yeah, it, it's not a big no-go for me as it was when I was 18. Mm. Yeah, I think at, at 18, I just didn't have the vocab. Uh, and I just, I guess I didn't have enough insights by 18, yeah, into what, what that meant. Mm. Yeah. When... I mean, maybe let's just start with what it is, mm. if you could define it. Mm. Um, and then, looking back, if you were to tell, like, tell the 18-year-old self mm. like, what it is, and you know, what would you tell that 18-year-old self? Because um, the culture is the expression of that reason, right? Mm. I think, I don't know, if I did... I it's a tough one. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I won't do anything different. Yeah, um, and I don't really believe in the whole let's travel back in time and give you extra info so you can make better choices. I generally think the, I think the choices I made, I, I would still make them. Um, yeah, and, and I think it's also a bit of wishful thinking to imagine that if you made this other choice, things could have gotten better or things would have turned out differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think philosophically, I think, you don't know. You never know what the future brings. And you have to just make the best guess possible. And mm. as long as the guess is uh, aligned to whatever inclinations or insights you already have, then it's as good as it gets. Yeah. Yeah, and then you just roll with whatever consequences that, that happen. Uh, Hopefully you, know. you can deal with that. <laughs> it's like imperfect knowledge, like, you know, so you've got to be not so hard on yourself. <laughs> yeah. You talk at length about um, passion, you know, mm. at your both your TED Talk, actually, a lot of your talks. Mm. Um, and passion seems to be such a loaded word. Mm, mm. Um, how would you describe it? You know, how would you define uh, passion in your own terms? Um, I, I think passion is quite a mis- misrepresented word. Um, I do agree that saying, saying to someone, follow your passion without any other caveats is not great advice. Um, but I think if you ignore the idea that we, we ought to follow our passion, mainly because our, our deepest passions follow us. So even if you don't follow it, it just trails along with you anyway, right? That, so that's the kind of thing which I think you should follow because it's going to follow you anyway. So, so my definition of passion is what is the most uh, deeply ingrained why in, in, in your life? Uh, the, the why you do things. Mm-hmm. Um, passion, at its root word, uh, means to suffer. So it has to be something so deeply meaningful to you that you're actually willing to go through hell for it. You're willing to suffer for it. Yeah. So I think there are many things that we think are passions, but are actually not. We don't really want to suffer for it that badly. Right. Any examples? Um, I, <laughs> for people I, who are listening, they'll be like, okay, I, I don't maybe. know. Like, like the, okay, so, so the analogy I always draw is that um, that, that there's a big difference in hearing uh, someone talk about passion with a small p and passion with that big yes. capital P that you know they better follow it, otherwise they will die unhappy, right? 
So, so for example, if, if you say you are passionate about playing the drums, right? And if I ask you, why are you passionate about playing the drums? And if you say like, I don't know, like I get a kick out of it. It's very fun. I love going for rehearsals, blah, 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 blah. And, every, and as I keep hearing your answers, I don't get the sense that there is any real deep stake in it. Then to me, that's a small p passion. It means that uh, it brings you happiness. You love it. Um, but when push comes to shove and you have to choose this thing or other things, um, if you drop it, it's not going to be a big deal. You're, you're, you're going to get past it. You're, you're going to find something else and, and, it's, and life will go on. But if I get an answer like, uh, okay, this, this might sound really, really stupid and I don't tell anyone this, but when I play the drums, I feel like I'm alive and, and I feel like I was born to do this. So if I hear that kind of answer, like there, there's, a, there's a vulnerability to it, there is, a, there is a sense of disclosure, emotional disclosure, then what you are hearing is a passion that is deeply rooted in the person's identity. Right? Um, whether there's a healthy or unhealthy uh, root is, is another Never. question. But, <laughs> but, 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 but once you hear the depth, you get the sense that for some reason, this thing is a thing that the person must take a chance on. Otherwise, it's one of those deathbed regrets kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so those passions, I believe you should find a way to pursue it mm -hmm. yeah, in whatever form that is most healthy uh, mm -hmm. for your current season in life. Yeah. I'm just reflecting back in my own life and also mm -hmm. thinking on, I think when you're young, when you're 18, nothing mm -hmm. that you're doing really just have that, you know, yeah, big yeah. sort of like mm -hmm. sacrificial uh, emotional uh, mm. stick that you're talking about. Mm. How would one, you know, go about finding that? At 18? You know, whatever <laughs> age, right? You know, I, I think I'm... I, I think it's, <laughs> it's probably easier for it's us... Tough. It's tough. You know, it's, it's easier for us, I think, to find the answer when we're adult. Mm -hmm. I think if, when you're 18, it's like, you're 18 only lah, you know? Like, you don't have to worry too much if you don't have the... if you don't have the great passion of your life, mm -hmm. uh, Sometimes if your life was very comfortable or if you're just the sort that didn't have to think too hard about uh, what stakes you're willing to live your life for, then, then you could not know that answer until somewhere further down the road. And, and that's fine. Um, but for us as adults, I think especially when you are in your 20s, your 20s is your time to explore and figure out what is the thing that you're going to stake your territory in or, or stake your life on by the time you get to your 30s or 40s. Because after that, so, so I tend to think of uh, my life in decades, right. right? So 20s is the time to just muck about and make your mistakes, switch your career. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a time of discovery, mm. right? But you should be able to discover a lot more of your answers by the time you're in your 30s. Because in your 30s, you should be solidifying some of your choices already. Like, I'm very clear, that's not what I want. This is more mm. of what I want. And I'm going to start to build. Uh, by your mid-30s, I think you should be making some concrete choices. Already. Right. So actually, yeah. what you just said really uh, coincides. So I just wrote an article on uh, Medium. Mm. And uh, one of the points was uh, premature specialization mm. is the hindrance to success. Yeah. Uh, mm. Following what Kevin Kelly, uh, who's a uh, Wire magazine uh, acting founding executive editor mm. say because he doesn't have a job till he's 35 yet he wrote books and mm. do all these wonderful projects mm. and um, so my point was that you know in your, like what you echoing what you say mm. in your 20s 
you should try. You should mm. experiment. Mm. I think the last thing you want to do is to, to to stay in a job and try to accumulate wealth, only mm. to know that on your forty, mm. when you have all the wealth in the world, mm. then you're 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 just too late to do anything. Yeah, I, I think that that there's that there's the whole aspect of um, doing it for 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 your own good, right? But now that it's all like trendy to talk about disruptions and all, <laughs> I do think it's actually very practical for you to explore your multidisciplinary self, your your multi interest self, because um, if your life ever gets disrupted, you will want to have different things to be leaning on, mm-hmm. right? If if I if I think my whole life I am just let's say just a doctor. And let's say one day circumstances takes away that whole thing away yeah, from me. I'm not a doctor anymore. Yeah. Then you're left with that question, who am I? Who am I, right? And if you don't have a good answer to that, you can, you can be really depressed. So I think if you realize, oh, I am a doctor slash writer slash musician, then you can cobble together a weird career that no one would have been able to predict <laughs> for you and for your circumstances. Mm-hmm. I think the... I, I guess the, the, the biggest uh, problem that I see for many young people, especially young Singaporeans, is uh, thinking that I have to find this one thing that defines me. Yeah. Uh, but that's not true. It's about finding all the things that define who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, because from those things is all of your opportunities uh, in the world. So I think it's immensely practical to think about your, your passions. Mm. Yeah, because work is essentially about bringing your, what you deeply care for into the marketplace and finding someone who also cares about the same thing and then finding out how much that person's willing to pay for you to meet that need. That, yeah. That's essentially the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, so my analogy was that I say that um, a business is like a vehicle, right? Mm. That brings your, your, your skills or your passions, mm. put it into that vehicle and transport that to deliver it to people in exchange uh, for money. Mm. And it's just kind of like what it, it is that you say. Mm. Um, your passions though, your passions since uh, young and till now, mm. from the dot-com days uh, mm. till today, <laughs> yeah. what's the evolution you know, uh, of the <laughs> understanding of what your passion is? Um, Looking backwards, it was definitely evolved. Uh, I think the my passion to create, right? My identity as a creative, I think, was always there, which is why I even uh, bothered to give architecture a shot, right? Um, yeah. So the creative thing is still there. But back then, when mm. you are in architecture school, when mm. you're in the dot com days, where mm. George joined um, mm. the internet company as yes. a creative director. What 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 do you feel your passion was back then, or was there? Um, I I. How do you view your passion? I joined. I was open to going to architecture school because I knew I liked to create, uh, and since um, art school was not an option for my mom, uh, <laughs> architecture was a good compromise, and yeah. I thought I could live with it because it had some component of creativity. Yeah. Uh, I joined the dot-coms also because I got to create. Um, and I guess by creating, what I mean is the ability to make something out of nothing. Like you have that freedom to do that. Um, yeah, so, so the dot-com was a great way to learn how to create in, in, in that way. Uh, yeah, so, so that is still something I do up to today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that will ever leave me. A new 
new inclinations. Uh, I think over the years, because of my work, I've seen that I'm interested in the work of bridge building. Uh, I like the idea of figuring out how to bring together people or communities that would not normally associate with each other or talk to each other. Um, I think that is something I'm willing to do a lot more of in the next few decades. When did you find out about that? Um, is that can you describe a, a incident or a day or you know something mm -hmm. or a person? I, I think it's in in the last few years, uh, especially uh, especially as I see what's going on in the world and going on in Singapore, where um, where just tensions are rising generally between different uh, like different factions in society. Right. You know, like conservatives versus liberals or different religious groups or different uh, races. Yeah. So, so I think there needs to be a lot more work in that department. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, it, so it's, a, it's sort of a field of work that I'm interested in learning more about. Like, how, how do you do that better? Yeah. Since we're on that topic, um, mm. what do you feel, what has Singapore done well in, mm. in bridging that gap? And mm. what is still lacking? Mm, I, I think our... <laughs> I think the, the way we favour, like, very interventionist, like, <laughs> let's, let's just, like, mess around with the quotas and HDB and all that, I, I think it has panned out well, yeah. actually. <laughs> I, I very much appreciate actually living in, in, in HDB. Mm -hmm. uh, I enjoy it very much. And I think about how if someone actually didn't engineer this multi-racial or multi-religious uh, combination of people who live yeah. in it. I'm not sure that would have happened naturally. I, I think it wouldn't have. Yeah, so, so I actually appreciate uh, how our public housing is done. Um, so, I, so I think that is very successful. Um, I guess I, 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 wish, um, I wish there was some assurance that we could see more of that kind of social mixing, uh, but it's hard. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it, it, it's hard without the big hand of government coming in to catch <laughs> us, you know. So, so, so there's a delicate balance of how much freedom do you want to allow people to make their choices mm. of like where they want to live and who mm. they want to associate with, and and where does and where do we want to have the state come in and say like, no, you know what, I, I don't trust your inclinations. I'm going to force all of you to 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 get together. So, I mean, you see the problem in schools right now where, where certain classes of people would mingle in certain schools because yes. that's where the market forces drive them. Yeah, I think right. Adrian talked about that a little bit. He's uh, mm -hmm. quite keen. Adrian Tan, who wrote, writes the teenage textbook, uh, yeah. teenage book. he's a lawyer now. Yeah, so I, I do think that's not healthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's like... How do you fix that? Yeah, you know, like so. So, do you want someone to thing, come you know. in and put yeah. a quota, like, and and then you'll resist that? So, yes. so I I actually think the government's always caught in a very hard place. Oh. It's always about balance. Yes. Let's balance the, you know, and let's calibrate. But these are very unsexy words. Nobody likes to think about balance and calibration. They like to think about black and white, yeah. right? But the government's always forced to be in a very grey zone and making a choice that that half the country probably doesn't like. Mm. Half the country appreciates. So, so you're sort of caught in a rock and a hard place. Yeah, it seems yeah. A, it's a hard job. It, it is a hard job. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a very hard job. And, and actually, when, when you talk about like, uh, what has changed, uh, at 18, um, 
I think when, when all of my peers were were just defaulting into like signing up for government scholarships because yeah. that's that's just how you think at eighteen. Right? Yeah. Just sign up for scholarship, you still don't know what's going on in your life. Do, do you do? Do you? Do, I, I didn't. Oh, you didn't. Uh, I, okay. I didn't because that I associated like government scholarships and the kind of career to the right. whole office um, cubicle, to the whole office like, cubicle not, lifestyle, the known, which was the known list. Yeah, which was like just not me. List. So that has changed right. um, because uh, as I grow up. Uh, I see more and more what a meaningful uh, and purposeful work uh, government work is. Mm. Um, and, and I think I wouldn't be as closed off uh, to work in the public sector as I was at 18. At 18, I was very resistant to it. I thought that was like you know, such a boring job. Right? But now I see it. it is not boring. It's very meaningful. And, and I would actually strongly encourage um, young people who feel very much about how they want to do something mm. for this country, not to, uh, not to dismiss joining the civil, uh, the civil sector. The civil All right. Service. Yeah, well, let's, yeah. Um, if anyone would be listening to this, maybe you want to share some yeah. sexy um, government job position that is available out there. I mean, I've, I've never worked for the government, so I, I don't know what is currently available. But I think, I mean, look, the, the government does such a great diversity of, mm. of work out there, right? So, so I think if, if you're interested in impacting society at a very large level, um, government's a great, uh, great place to do it. Uh, I mean, you have, to, you have to be able to navigate bureaucracy and you have to, uh, you have to learn to live with... Uh, if, if you're a rebel, you have to live with a culture that is not exactly a rebellious culture. Yeah. But at the same time, that, that culture precisely needs uh, people who are willing to, to... I'm trying very hard not to use things out of the box. Yes, yes. <laughs> very, very resistant to cliches. Uh, um, yeah, I, I, I think they... Ev- I would say every industry and every sector needs people who think differently. Yeah. So I think the government would definitely thrive, right, if there were more people who are different. Have a different point of view. Yeah, so, so it doesn't help all of us, either, <laughs> if all of the maverick types decide, oh, never the government, let's go and do private sector work or people yeah. sector work, well, then that means all the people working in government are, are not the maverick types, right? Uh, I, I think in the government, there are people mm-hmm. who, who, are, who are different, who are maverick, and, and their departments and their ministries mm. are probably the better for it. Mm. Yeah, you need that diversity. So, so that's why I would encourage an 18-year-old to consider taking up a government scholarship if that is what you find meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. My my whole theory about the whole Maverick being in the government thing is that mm. like because Singapore is 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 nice. Because mm. we are, we are in like a developed country now. So as compared to as a Maverick you want to be mm. impactful. Mm. So um, my theory is that it's more impactful if you're in the private sector or the social mm. sector. So I don't know if that's a, 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 just a weird theory that, mm. that I put out there. Mm. Yeah, anyway, moving on. <laughs> to, um, yeah, you. Um, mm. as, after two years as a creative director in the, the dot-com, mm. um, it's a web design company. Uh, yeah, you, one was a web design yeah. studio and the other one was an online bookstore. So I mm. held two jobs. Why... What were the decisions that make you put a hawk to that? Oh, um... Because it wasn't, it wasn't in a cubicle? 
You yeah. don't need to wear court shoes. Yeah, it, it was it was it was a really great experience. I don't know if um, that's what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it, it was it was great. Uh, everything about it was good, except at the end of two years, the conclusion was this is probably not what I want to do either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just a it was just a gut instinct that probably not. Like I don't see myself doing this for the next five, ten, fifteen years. Yeah, fun, but no. Yeah. And what do you think is lacking in those? I think it was meaning. Mm. Yeah. So so it had the freedom. I had the ability to create. Mm-hmm. I had the ability to steer it in whatever direction I wanted to. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't a hundred percent the kind of meaning that I was looking for at work. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, coming back to since we're on the passion uh, topic. What do you think are the most common mistakes when it comes to following your passions? Oh, oh my goodness. And there's probably like a ton of articles that articulate this better than me. Uh, biggest mistake, I think, number one for me is if you follow a small P passion mm-hmm. rather than a capital P type. Because if, if you follow your small, your small P passions, right, those are the kind that could potentially be fickle, could be potentially those that you're not that talented in. And it's okay to not be talented in a passion, but if it's a huge capital P passion, you will drive yourself towards getting better. Right. But it's a small, small, small P passion. You don't feel enough stake, mm-hmm. then you don't feel enough drive to improve. You're like, oh, I love it. I'm passionate about it. So it's like, you know, American Idol. You see all these people going, oh, I'm very passionate about singing. Well, obviously, you're not that passionate about singing enough to seek out critics and to get advice and to hear that actually you're not that great and that you really need to improve, right? Um, just because you feel like, you know, you're passionate about it doesn't equal that you are talented in it. And if you're not talented in it or willing to get talented in it or improve in it, then that equates to the market not being willing to pay a price for, for, for your work. So first is to find out whether it's a small P or a big P. I think make, make that distinction for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you, I think then you have a clearer perspective of whether you should put all of your chips into this bowl or not. You know? uh, so I think some small P passions you can safely say are best uh, kept as a hobby. It's an interest, mm-hmm. right? something that you like to do. But you don't need to stake your whole life on it. Yeah. So, so I think that, that would probably be the biggest mistake made by people. Mm-hmm. So don't put all the chips if it's a small pea. Like, like try it out. You know? I, I think investigate your passions a bit more. So, so for instance, sometimes I hear from young people that, oh, I'm very passionate about starting a cafe. And I think like, okay, first of all, like it's, that's a very scary industry to go into <laughs> lightly. You know, right, yeah. never go into it lightly. Like if you're telling you, you me, speak from experience. Oh my god, yeah. Uh, so so it's like if and, and, and that's the thing, like I would never discourage anyone actively from entering F and B. But I would ask questions. Like and if I get a sense that you just want to do it because you think it's fun or you're passionate about mm-hmm. baking cookies, then I would say this is an industry that can potentially bankrupt you, so you better be very clear about what is the passion. Yeah. But if you're telling me things like, I don't know, I feel like I was born to cook. I was born to be in a kitchen and work right. 18 hours, then good, do it. But you never know, so go cook Correct. for 18 hours first. Yeah, so, so, so and, give it and a see shot. if you can do it for a year. 
Yeah, but but you know, don't don't like just don't uh don't drain your savings dry and start a cafe just like that. Mm-hmm. You know, figure out what is the passion underneath it. Okay, mm-hmm. so so sometimes our our small p passions I think are useful yeah. to signal to us that maybe there's a deeper capital P underneath. Mm-hmm. So sometimes like you hear from let's say kids who dream of being a doctor and then they don't get the good grades enough to get into medical school and then they get all depressed, right? And then you ask them why do you want to be a doctor? And and if it comes down to, I really just want to help people, then you can say, well, that doesn't go away. You don't have to be a doctor. You could be A, B, C, D, E, which still allows you to help people now, and, and in a medical way if, you, if, if you're so inclined. Um, yeah, so, so drilling deeper into what's, under, what's underneath. Yeah, what's really underneath. So yeah. start asking why. To yeah, get very curious about your passions. Right. That's really good advice. <laughs> um, do you think that people have multiple passions? Um, it's it's possible. It's possible. I um I'm, I'm I'm sure it is because, um, I mean we're we're just talking about the realm of work, for example. Yeah, yeah. You know, let let alone like what's your passion for, uh, for the kind of family you want, the kind of friendships you want. So yes, there there are, there are multiple. Uh, deep wise that we have, but I don't think it's going to be a whole big laundry <laughs> list, <laughs> you know, because like the like the big uh, capital P passions, the wise that uh, we live our life around. I don't think there are that many. Yeah, I don't think there are that many. Yeah. No, I mean if there's yeah. more than than good, then good you know, you, yeah, you can move on to the next thing if that didn't yeah. work out. <laughs> I think just find the one already. Some people are very stressed. <laughs> like, they're, they're, like, I don't even have a one. It's okay, just find, find the one. Yeah, just go, yeah. go try it and, you know, yeah. and start asking why. Hmm. Um, tell me about the time when you decided to start the, the School of Thoughts. Um, what were, what, why did you want to do it? What were the, you know, the emotional rewards that you, you, you see um, starting that? Well, the, the decision to start it was very simple. Um, I was getting out of the dot-com thing. Mm-hmm. I was contemplating what's next for myself. At that point, I was even contemplating like, hey, maybe I should go and go to seminary and maybe be a missionary and travel around the world. Like, it, was, oh, wow. it was as crazy as that. Like, you know, oh, just that's, thinking... That's really like, different. Yeah, I know. I know. So I, I could very well have taken that route as well yeah. right, and traumatized my parents further. Um, but it just happened that I had a conversation with a university friend mm-hmm. and he had just... Uh, graduated from NIE uh, and he had a very interesting uh, uh, idea. So he said that he had noticed uh, a social gap and a market gap, right? He said like um, he noticed that a lot of uh, students that he taught were graduating out of the system feeling like quite purposeless yeah. and, and it didn't matter whether they were high performing or low performing students. Generally, they, they had this story in their head that um, education was primarily about my individual success, right? Uh, and they didn't hold the larger story that education is also about enabling us to help everybody achieve a collective win as a society. Mm. And, and that's actually very dangerous uh, mm. for, for, for people to lose that plot, mm. right? So, and he was starting to teach general paper, and he saw so much possibilities in how General paper, by default, you have to take it, you must mm. do well in it, and 
And one of the paths to doing well in it is to actually get very mature oh. in your way of thinking through issues. So this is one of the other good things that the government did, right? Well, I mean, it, 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 it's a it, it's an A level paper. Men that you have to do general it paper. <laughs> yeah. So so he thought he thought it was an interesting opportunity, yes. and he felt that actually a lot of kids weren't doing well in the paper, partly because they couldn't see the purpose mm. of the paper. Mm. Uh, and at that point of time, so this is about fifteen years ago. Um, general paper tuition wasn't a thing, not a, oh. not a very wide thing in the marketplace. Um, so so he thought, oh, why don't we start like this alternative GP tuition group? And it was just that, an alternative tuition group, not a school, right? Where we can sort of uh, have fun creating this new way of teaching GP that uh, would be very civic conscious or like teaching them to care about the world. And I thought like, yeah, why not? It doesn't sound very high stakes. You know, it's not like go and set up a school. Um, and I thought I was willing to give it a shot mm-hmm. uh, and maybe patchwork, like patchwork my salary with like freelance design work on the side, mm. right? So, yeah, so I would say for, the, for a good first five, maybe to six years of my uh, career, right, it was, it was patchwork, right? Where, yeah, I mean, the, the experimental GP tuition group that we started, uh, we started with 20 kids uh, and we taught them in a basement. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of the year, we had 100. And that was the impetus for us to, why don't we put some money in and start a, a learning center proper? Yeah. yeah. And because my friends were still teaching within the system, mm. uh, they only could teach an allocated uh, short number of hours a day. Yes. So um, you're the one. So, so I had to hold the bag. <laughs> la. You know, the, the, the only like untrained, non, non-NIE teacher. So, so I had to learn from my friends actually. Right. Yeah, how, how, how to teach GP uh, and going from whatever experience I had as a GP student. Um, oh. Yeah, so, so I taught GP and I also did a lot of freelance design work on the side mm-hmm. to basically uh, get my career started. Yeah. yeah. And the results were great. The, the, the students enjoy it and they, they showed the result to the parents yeah they, they had I would say they had decent enough exam results so so we are we never were and never will be a tuition center that says we are here to get you your A <laughs> you know because because the hard truth is not everyone can get an A right uh, but what we promise is to is to get you to a good exam grade that because ultimately whether you can get an A or get a B is really I can bring you that far mm-hmm. and then you gotta make that final leap. Uh, so, but I, I will never say I promise you an A. I can't make that right. promise. So I would ask even more is that mm. is that is that do you sell more to the student or do you sell more to the parents? Um, well the parents <laughs> the parents sign the checks. So oh. ultimately parents well, actually, it's funny. When uh, at JC level, I think students make the decision mm. uh, equal equal to parents. It's not okay. that in secondary school or primary school. That's primarily parents making decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but at JC level, uh, we see equal number of kids making a decision and, and parents making a decision. Um, we've we never marketed ourselves. Word as, of mouth. Uh, yeah, yeah, we we were we were word of mouth, but we've never marketed the social or civic angle very strongly, actually. Uh, in in all the years we've we've been around, um, that that might that might change actually. Oh, but but we never did in our beginning years because I think we were quite practical in understanding that the market may appreciate the sentiment, <laughs> but not uh, but not uh, basing put, your entire marketing angle on yeah, that. Yeah, but but not put their money where their mouth is. Like. I mean, everybody <laughs> likes the idea of moral and civics and all that, yeah. but 
when it comes down to the crunch, they don't want to pay you mm-hmm. to tutor my kid in civic education. I, I think you did both. Uh, yeah, but you know, no, right. we, uh, at least we, 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 we didn't think the market would, uh, we didn't think the market would um, want that. Yeah. So, so we basically just advertised ourselves as, um, oh, we didn't advertise ourselves. We just said that we, um, we, we, teach. We, we, we teach general paper. We specialize in it. Uh, oh. We teach you to broaden your perspective oh. and see things in a, in a larger way and care about the issues and all that. So, so those, that, that was the way we married that, both intentions. And that was like uh, the marketing message. Kind of. Uh, I, we, we've never uh, invested in marketing or in advertising. So it was actually just kids coming in and then realizing for themselves like, hey, this is quite a different mm-hmm. approach. And it's nice because I actually feel excited to learn about this stuff. Um, yeah, because we, we, we keep it quite real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because uh, although the exam is, a, is something that we are always very cognizant about it's the students get the clear message that the exam is not the biggest win we're looking at the biggest win that we're looking at for them is that when the exam is done they still understand how the world works right. they understand the context of this but that is, is when yeah. they come in then you sell them on that not not the not yeah, the not, not, oh, not, okay. not the, not the grad, yeah okay yeah i mean as far as the pre goes it's like we specialize in gp we're really good at it uh and we and we broaden your perspective about how right uh, how everything happens like. got it and then when they come in that's when they yeah, realize right. how much deep better the it goes, much uh. better thing it is yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um how would you say that the approach you know um that you guys teach in the school of thoughts were different and if you can give some examples um okay like Maybe just comparing from you learning in school to when your teacher is teaching you. Okay, um, well, the first way we keep it different is uh, every year we relook our curriculum. Uh, because if you are teaching current affairs, it's so important that you are teaching kids current affairs. Mm-hmm. And what disturbs us over 15 years is to see kids using super outdated examples as if the world hasn't changed mm. for the past 10-20 years, mm-hmm. right? Um, the, the most classic example I can tell you is, so if you read Cambridge Examiner reports, you know, where, where, where they tell, they basically tell the country like, okay, look, your kids generally make these mistakes, please tell them not to. And one of the repeated mistakes that Cambridge has warned us about is how many Singaporean students like to say Africa is a country, which is so appalling, right? right? Because, I mean, it, it's appalling on many levels, but, the, but it's appalling because here is a huge continent and Singaporean kids imagine that it is homogeneous, right. that there are not many countries in there. And, and, and the Africa that they write about is the Africa of the starving Ethiopian babies. I, I, I don't even know where they still get that. That's super like my era kind of examples, <laughs> right? You know, or, or, or they will say like, or you, oh, why do you even why do you even write that? You know, like if you know that that's not something you know too much about. No, then... no, that's the thing. So, right. so the kids, um, so the kids who who don't know very much about current affairs, mm-hmm. they will default into okay. I need a bad example. Africa is the bad example, oh, okay. and then I guess all the Scandinavian countries are the good example. Oh and right. So, so if you don't know very much about the world, you sort of like uh, have okay. you operate by stereotypes. You see. Right. Yes. Yeah. I don't so, know. You, I will write about India. At least that's closer, and I might know better. 
<laughs> yeah, so so I think so what, that's one one of the things that yeah. We, so we we keep it very relevant. We tell them mm-hmm. exactly what's going on. Uh, we uh, we help them to deconstruct. Like, why would uh, why would China think like that? Why would the US think like that? How would they operate? Um, so so that's the other thing that makes us different. I think a lot of uh, I I I think a, a lot of kids imagine GP is a content uh, thing, and it's about cramming as much content as possible in me. But it's not. Uh, to understand the world, it's about understanding context. That means what is the context of government? What is the context of an MNC? What is the context of a small to medium corporation? Con- if you don't understand the context, then once you understand that, you understand how it works. How does it think? Why does it always choose it like that instead of like that? Mm. And once you understand that, then, ex- then the examples make sense. Mm. Or you can hazard a decent enough guess how they might react if this Right, happens. so let's just take MMC for example. Mm. Mm. Like, okay, how would you teach, how would uh, School of Thought teach MMC? Or um, is that like, is that like a day, okay, today we're teaching MMC. How is um, it? Yeah, yeah, so, so we teach them by, <clears throat> so we teach them by uh, who are the players in the world. That means who are the major players on the global stage you need to know about. And we first start by players. Mm. You know, so you need to understand the governments, the intergovernment organizations, the non-governmental organizations, uh, the corporations, the religious organizations, uh, the, the, the criminal syndicates. Mm-hmm. So, so you think in terms of players the on a world stage. Criminal syndicates too. Yeah, wow. yeah because they're, they're okay. a major player that is not talked about. Yes, and that's yes. the thing. If we don't talk about it, it's as if they don't exist in your world. Right. And they do. And they do. Yes. Right? So when we talk to the kids about like, um, who do you think makes all the pirated stuff that you like to buy? That there is no awareness of mm. actually who's making this stuff? Who's getting the profit? Mm. They don't think about it. And then they get shocked when you tell them that, well, criminal syndicates are behind a lot of the pirated stuff that you buy. Mm. And then we get them to understand why are criminal syndicates going into pirated goods? You know, instead of just staying in drugs and prostitution and all the other classic evil guy stuff, right? Right. And then when they understand that, they go into that because this is the one good that they traffic in that has almost universal approval from society. You know, like, you will be all righteous about, no, I don't buy drugs, I don't go to prostitutes and all that. But, pirated goods? Yeah, it's a very grey area. It's a very grey area and, and a lot of people in society are far more accepting of it. Yeah. Therefore, it is an excellent market opportunity mm-hmm. for the criminal syndicates. Yes, very true. So they make a lot of money from, from there. A lot of money from right. there. And you have, you have numbers too. To, oh, I don't know. Uh, I, that, that, I don't know how I'm going to get numbers. Like, hey, criminal syndicate. Oh, that, that's a great book called oh, Illicit. So, okay. so you have to read that. And then you understand, like, <laughs> oh, okay. That, uh, that explains why, you know, everywhere you go in the world, yeah. there are always these people who can set up shop and then wrap up and then run away. Right. So the, yeah. the, the topics is like uh, you break down by players and you teach each, each player. Yeah. So, so we don't go by content. Mm. We go by context. Like where does it come from? Why does it operate like that? Why doesn't the problem go away? Right. You know, and, and, and when you teach it from that point of view, mm-hmm. it becomes very interesting. Yeah. Like, oh. What's, what's the angle you work? take though? Uh, it's like, like, I don't know, MMC. Was it a big why first? Like why did it exist? Or you, you talk about the business uh, yeah, model you, behind it? You talk about like why, like I guess trying to understand the player and, mm. and, and we always take a neutral perspective to things. Mm. Yeah, so it's neutrally, like how do you understand this? So once you understand their interests, once you understand their intentions and the purpose of the structure, yep. then you can better 
navigate the 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 morality of it mm. you know so it's it's not great uh, it, it, it's not great writing to say all MNCs are evil and corrupt. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> right? Uh, neither is it... Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's not a balanced point of view to say that, just as it's not balanced to say all governments are terrible. Right? So it's... Understand the institutions. Understand why the institution operates in a certain way. Understand why institutions in, in the context of a country operate in a different way. So it, it can get quite crazy complicated. Oh, yes. Because it's about understanding, let's say, the player... And then the country context, and then also the international context, mm-hmm. and then also the individual context of why we see things in different right. ways. So, but if you teach it from that point of view, then once the once you leave school, that's the stuff that doesn't leave you. I know it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. The, all, all your examples and the content will just wash away like a sponge. Right? That was our experience. Yeah. Right? But if you leave behind the frameworks and the structures of how to think then that, to me, is education. Mm. Yeah, and, and that's why we do what we do. Yeah. That's fantastic. It shouldn't be called, it should be called life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it is. I, I always tell uh, my kids that, you know, you'll be, you'll be surprised, but when you walk around uh, in your adulthood, you will see people living a bad GP paper response. Oh. I say it, it's not about your bad GP essay. Who cares about that at the end of the day, Right. What I care about is that you end up living a bad GP paper response. Yeah. So it's one thing to answer, is marriage in, uh, let's say, is marriage to one partner still a relevant concept in life? I can understand, I can write that very dispassionately in an exam hall, right? But what happens when I take that answer and I live it out in my life and the person I marry has a very different GPSA response to that. <laughs> then you're going to see where the pain lies. Then you're finally going to see that behind every GP question that gets asked are incredibly high stakes. It's just that we don't perceive the stakes we, because we don't Not live yet. it. Yes. We don't live it. Yes. Yeah, but someone does. And once you see that and you care about that, that's when your GP response becomes excellent. And that's what empathy is. Right. You empathize and you understand how the world works. Um, the evolution process of mm. the teaching methods, has it changed? It has been what? You mean for us? Yeah. For 10, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. 15, is it yes. 15 years now? Over 15 years. Wow. So, so okay. like I said, every year we review, the, we review not just the curriculum content and the context, we review, uh, we review the way we teach. Mm. Yeah, because remember for us, the goal is not a it's not just about helping the kid excel in the exam hall. It's about helping that kid excel outside of it when he grows up, right? So that's why for us it's very important to keep the way we teach, like going with where the world is going. What does the world need? How should we teach? So, so that's what defines the way we craft our curriculum. What are the key matrix uh, sounds very KPI now, <laughs> um, but that uh, you guys look at when you change things or you know what are key questions you guys are asking I, I guess the key thing we ask is what's relevant what's uh, what's relevant what's increasingly irrelevant yeah and and the thing about teaching this over 15 years is you start to see like at some point and it's very weird at some point you start to see wow the old answers I used to teach in response to a certain question I cannot teach it like that anymore I actually have to change so for me one of the realizations I had is there's a very classic GP question from from quite a few years back, that says um, something along the lines of what's the likelihood of World War III? Okay. And I, I would say for the first early half of the millennium, 
the way I taught it or explained it to kids was along the lines of how unlikely that was because of common interests and globalization and, and mixed uh, stakes and all that. So it so was very unlikely, right? Then when you sort of see where the world is going now, you have to calibrate that response because it's no longer super unlikely. Yeah. Now the, the likelihood of it that, that there is that, that there is that possibility now being introduced right. by the rise of certain elements and all that. And, and that's what I mean by it's so important to keep it current. Mm. Otherwise, it's like if you're just photostatting like essays from your seniors from like 10,000 years ago, right? You have the, a completely false idea of how the world operates. And that is, that is very, very bad for citizenship, yes. I feel. Yeah, so, so I, I do see how high the stakes are. It's not about that A. It's not about that A, right? Who cares if I get you the A and then you come out and then you have a fake idea of the world? <laughs> That's terrible. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's about that double win for us. Mm-hmm. Like, how, how do I get that? Yeah. And I, was, I would even go so far to say that that is sort of like the content. Does the method, methodology in teaching, uh, yes. does it have evolved? Yes, 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 definitely. Oh, okay. Yeah. Can you tell, is, is there any examples uh, you'd like we, to share? We have become, I think when we first started off, we were all rookie teachers. Yeah. So uh, over time, um, as like one of my directors went into, uh, so, so, so what makes us unusual is we, we try and learn from different sectors and different disciplines. So one of the most influential disciplines uh, on us is a field called ontological coaching, right? Oh. Where, where you, learn, no uh, you, you learn a lot more about what are the habits of uh, the habits of being, right? That there is a narrative habit that we have in our head, there's an emotional habit that we have, uh, and then there is a whole physical body habit that we have. Wow. And, and, and when those three things intersect, um, that causes us, that, that is sort of like the, the way we operate in the world. And if you want people to think different or do different, you sort of have to change all three. Together? At the... you, you try like, yeah, to, okay. to, to sort of like pull wow. uh, the different um, things. Yeah. So, so if let's say you're looking at a very simple problem of why is it that kids can uh, study about poverty and write an A essay on poverty, but actually not care about poverty and not oh. want to give to the poor. Right. It, it, it's completely possible. So why is yes. that? So I need to look at what are the pre-existing stories that people have about Narrative. the poor, yeah. the narratives, what are the narrative habits we have about poor and rich, what are the emotional habits that we bear towards the issue, mm-hmm. and what are the physical habits. And if I look at all that, then how do I structure it into my, uh, into my curriculum mm-hmm. yeah, or into the, the, the workshops or the events that we create mm-hmm. so that we are trying all the time to pull these three things apart wow. yeah, and, and create like a new... Uh, a new story, a new emotion, a, yeah. a new possibility. Is it just um, I don't know, asking questions? Because uh, because so, that sounds like a like a therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it, it's a bit. So so seriously, some some of the kids, some of the kids actually get a very like emotionally cathartic experience out of coming for tuition, right? Except like this, how how do you even market that? It sounds like it sounds crazy. Your mind will get blown when you come. Yeah, you do. So, some some kids actually experience it as mind blowing. Some experience it as life changing. Yes. Uh, yeah, because. Yeah, because at 18, you, you've maybe have never actually had a deep conversation mm. about how complicated people are or how complicated the world is. 
Yeah, but but we we always show them. It's not just about let me show you how depressing the world is, right? It's, it's not about that. It's let me show you how complicated the world is. Yeah. And yet, how important you are to the equation of changing things. Mm. Yeah. So so that's always the, the the narrative that we try and land on. Yeah. The the conviction experience that your choices matter so much to the world, right? Including the choice of what kind of essay are you going to write, you know, to maybe change the mind of the examiner that is marking this. Mm. Yeah. And it starts from there and then it's all the life choices that follow after the exams. Mm. Yeah. And other than other than grades as one of the matrix, um, mm. is there anything else you, you guys look at? Um, I guess we... We, we don't track like a matrix of stuff. Uh, but I guess we, we look at um, like, okay, have I given you, okay, if I had to sum it down to three things, it will be, uh, have we given you confidence in the exam hall? Uh, have I given you clarity about the changing world? Uh, and have I given you more conviction about the choices that you can make oh. for work and for life? Oh, well, that's fantastic. Yeah, so those three things. Um... Are there any prerequisite skills mm. of being a teacher? <laughs> ah. uh, a, a good teacher is yes. a good learner. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep it as simple as that. Um, yeah, uh, a good teacher is, is a good student. It's a person who never stops wanting to learn, never stops seeing that they have to learn, and they must be humble enough to learn. Uh, and that alone will make you a good teacher. Yeah. And the greatest teachers are the ones that never stop learning. Yeah, it's when we stop learning, then we kind of like, I, you'll be teaching from old stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so you must always keep learning. What about, what about just being an empathetic teacher? <laughs> you can. I mean, you can care a lot. Uh, but yeah, so, so for, for, for us at the Thought Collective, um, the three words that have always grounded our work is knowledge, empathy, and initiative. That makes you a great teacher. It makes you a great politician. It makes you a great businessman. It makes you a great everything, Right. Uh, so care about knowledge, care about being empathetic, and care about taking initiative. You can't have one of these factors and just imagine that that's enough. So you can be super knowledgeable and be the smartest ass in the world, right? But if you don't care about people, and you cannot even take initiative for the things that you know so much about, then what are you going to do except show off to the world how smart you are, right? And if you are all Mr. Care Bear, right, you, you care about the whole world, but you don't know how to turn your caring into an initiative that can enroll other people in, and you don't have enough knowledge, right, to back up, to back up the things that you care about, you know, or to systemize it, or to or to enroll like all the smarty pants who 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 don't really care that much, mm-hmm. but but they will start caring when you show that hey, I can fight you on those grounds as well. Right. Yeah. So, so that's important, right? And then for those people who are all like go getter, like ah, oh, I'm just gonna take initiative and just go 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 go, right? But then you go without thinking, you go without feeling for other people, no, and that's a mistake. So yes. it's always about those three things. I love it. Yeah. And, and, and actually, that, that probably is the answer to the next question, which is uh, what separates a, a good teacher from a great teacher? Mm. And I think those are the three points you mentioned. Um, um, also, you guys at the School of Thought also pair students with community projects? Uh, is that still going on? We don't, we don't pair uh, our kids with community projects. Okay, so, how's that? Um, so so when, when they come to the School of Thought, I mean, they're, they're basically in a tuition program, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and that's all that they are committed to. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really up to them uh, whether they want to uh, take part in all of the other extra stuff we have going on in our ecosystem. Uh, 
So School of Thought is part of the Thought Collective. The Thought Collective does like strange events and workshops and all that kind of stuff which they can go for uh, as, uh, on their own. Uh. Mm. Yeah, but as a student, no, they, they, they just learn. Mm. There's, a lot, there's a lot going on in the modern student's plate. Right? Oh no, especially yeah. two years to teach life. Well, that's yeah. tough. I mean, but what, what we do is after they graduate, yeah. uh, we run like a very cool internship program. Oh yeah, maybe that was what I was asking. Okay. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah. So, so, so they can enroll in our internship program where we go pretty deep because at last there's no exam. Like, oh, that's so great. There's no exam. It's really all about let's, let's go in deep into who you are. Yeah. Right? And that's the... And they go through that internship experience. And then from there, we, we let them know a bit more about what we think are their strengths, what we think are their skills. Whoa. And we place them either within our own collective uh, or we, we have a network of uh, partner organizations that mm-hmm. we work with who let us know that they would like a youth intern. So we send them there. Yeah, so for example, if we think one of our interns would really be great for AWARE, mm-hmm. right, because of her inclination strength, we say, like, hey, AWARE, would you like that uh, a government agency might say we are looking for this youth. Mm-hmm. So and, and it's done very informally. Like it's just a network that we have from our greater body of work. Yeah. Yeah. Um a lot of people talk about strengths. I'm keen mm. to hear about weaknesses in in terms of just general. Like mm. what are the few things that people should start looking at? Because knowing your weakness is actually equally as important mm. as knowing your strengths. Mm. Um, so, what are the few? I mean, common weaknesses. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that um, people that you would dish out as, as like terms or common weaknesses of people. Uh, uh, when you put them into the various uh, um, project, how do you like? How does the weaknesses change where you place them in the internship program? Mm. Or it's more strength based. Uh, well, uh, it's. The thing about strengths is to realize that your greatest strengths are also your greatest weaknesses. Oh, that's true. So there is a, there is a, yeah. So so there's always a flip side to it. Yeah. So so yeah. For so for example, you may have a strength called uh, I don't know. You might have a strength called command. Command. Like let's say you 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 can rally a room like nobody can in a, and. You just have a presence. Everybody just comes to you and they'll follow. Yeah. Right? But you've got to realize the dark side of that strength. Mm. Right? That can easily tip into authoritarian, like, yeah. you know, and, and, and not needing to listen to people. So, so it's just understanding that mm. your strengths are also your weaknesses. Right. And showing them the double-edged sword. Yeah. So, so just understand that, understand uh, how that works. Are there any resources on that? Uh, the uh, books or... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you it's, like it's Strength Finder. Strength Finder. Okay, yeah. 2.0, correct. I have that book. Yeah. <laughs> um, what are some of the more common problems or questions that you are asking or seeking these days? Common problems I'm seeking. Or, yeah, problems or, you know, uh, in the world, I mean, uh, uh, questions that are trying to get answered. Is there anything that I'm that, trying to get answered? Oh, what day, day? Oh, day? Yeah. Oh, oh, you so, on the hand of, at oh, school of thought, you know, they some, might the, be some teams of problems or... Oh, the question the kids ask, uh, some of them just don't change. La. Um, okay, yeah, yeah, let's... It, it's about the, should I do, should I pursue my passion or right. should I do something practical? It's a practical? very you it's a, question. It's a very classic me. question. Right. What, what should I do? Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, oh, the, um, for most kids living reasonably comfortable lives... The biggest question 
uh, for them would be, what should I study? What should I work as? And, and, and it's a very conflicting question for them. Mm. Uh, kids who have a lot higher stakes in their lives, like financial struggles mm-hmm. or, or like other forms of suffering, they will ask very different questions. Mm. Yeah. But if I had to go average it out, the average kid just wants to know, what's my next step? How yeah. do I choose? That's it. It's a classic 18-year-old question. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it will change for the next uh, yeah, 10, it, it, does, it doesn't change for, for, for life, but at 18, yeah. it feels like such a huge question. Yeah. Um, so coming down to uh, food for thought. Yes. Because um, uh, we're moving quite slowly. Are you running? Are you on? No. Okay. Um, maybe just, uh, this is a, a good one I like to ask. Are there any favourite failures uh, that end up being really important for you or your life? Mm. Or, you know, how has a failure set you up for later success? Um, failures? Like, in, you mean in the restaurant business? Anything. Failures? I don't know. It, it, it's quite hard. Like, I, I can't think of something I would immediately label as a failure. Mm. Yeah. Or challenge. Uh, well, challenges, they're called plenty. La. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I... I tend to take a very long-term philosophical approach to things. Mm. Um, there have been projects or ventures that failed or seem to have failed. And yet, when you give it a few years and you reflect, you can kind of see what good came out from that as well. So it becomes very hard to brand it as a failure. Mm-hmm. You think like, yeah, that thing didn't work out. It failed. But it also helped us to do this different or think things different or make this choice that actually we wouldn't have made. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I, I guess I can't really think of like one big failure. Mm. Yeah. Um, food for thought. Mm. Almost ran bankrupt. Oh, Almost. No, it, 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 it's, it still has that thread. <laughs> no, I, I, but you I, still I, keep yeah. going on. It's it, it, yes. like, what, how many stores is that right now? Three? Four? Uh, we, we had three. And right. then we, yeah, we recently closed our Queen Street outlet. We mm-hmm. still have our Botanic Gardens on and our National Museum one. Right. Yeah. So that, that's still going on. Um, F&B, well, next year will be our 10th year running. Uh, it's deeply challenging. I mean, <laughs> one of the... <laughs> I guess one of the things that we should be reasonably pleased of ourselves is we survived 10 years. Uh, that's, that's quite a... That, that, that's quite a, Although, yeah. a, a... A victory alone, I think, yes. in the local F&B scene. Um, we, we, see, we see clearer now uh, what it takes to survive for a long time in F&B. And we always question ourselves whether, um, whether this is the right industry for us to remain in. Uh, because we came in here not for the money-making thing. Uh, we came in here for purpose. We wanted to experiment with restaurants as an alternative place to reach out to a public about issues. So, um, so it doesn't have to be in the current form that we run it in. So we're always uh, thinking it through. Like when is the right time to change form? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but for now, the current form is like that. Yeah, so, uh, so I wouldn't say it's like super profit-making. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it's not doing too badly actually right? Right. after we made that a lot that itself is a great news no no that itself is great news it's like oh gosh it's like a big bleeding wound in, in some months uh, yeah, it's quite painful um, why, why did you yeah. close the uh, 8-1 in, in Queens? Oh, uh, the, the what do you call it the, the, the lease was ending anyway oh okay, yeah, okay so we decided like it's not 
probably not not our priority to continue that lease. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and besides, we had two other like bigger outlets to uh, right. to manage. Yeah, so we were stretching ourselves a bit thin. So that's well, I, I know because for me, if I, I'll just close the big one and uh, yeah, <laughs> like downscale, right? It's <laughs> also like a, a matter of like when the leases end. That's yeah, true. So it's managing the the lease dates. Huh? Mm. Yeah. But for now, it's not it's not doing too badly actually. Yeah, sometimes many, we get pleasant surprise. How many partners right now in the the top? Yeah, everything. Uh, three. So there are three original founding, uh, founding directors. Yeah, so we still run it. And now there's still three. Yeah, there's three. The, tree is it, the same three. Yeah, uh, we oh. school of thought started with, uh, with five people. Mm. Uh, but then over the years, a lot. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it, because remember, it was it was an experimental tuition group, right. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, but over the years, like it, it's the three of us uh, form its core, mm. and so we still run it up to today. Mm. Mm. Are there uh, any qualities in your co-founder? That you appreciate the most. Oh well, I appreciate like everybody's like I appreciate all three of us ability to take a lot of crap. Uh, yeah, we take a lot from of, each, each other. No, no, oh. no. From from <laughs> from just the ups and downs of running a business over fifteen years. There's okay. a lot of there's a lot of uh, heartbreak, a lot of problems that will come your way. Right? Does heartbreak too well? Oh, oh, oh no! Obviously, oh, okay. you know because um, you put your heart out. You, you put your heart out and some things don't work out. Um, sometimes people are not who you think they are. Mm. Um, and of course, they're disappointments. People change. Yeah, people change. And but I, So what I deeply appreciate about my two friends who, who run this with me is that... Um, and we're very different people. Oh. We're, we're, we're quite different in personality. Uh, but we're not different in purpose. Okay. And we're not different in conviction level. Right. That means we are all three of us are sort of in it to like, we'll fight to the death, you know. The same purpose. Yeah, it's, it's the same purpose that keeps us together, and we can, and for various reasons, we can take a big hit. Yeah, not 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 just financially, but I'm thinking, think, talking about, a, we can take a big psychological or emotional hit mm. without uh, breaking down, right. and that helps a lot. Oh. As I think sometimes businesses fall apart uh, when founders have different purpose right. or have different appetites for destruction or appetites for suffering. Yeah. So I think what has kept this going is the three of us are fairly balanced in that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so and even, the reason mm. was because uh, of is it the characteristics or the qualities or because you guys align in the same uh, I think we, we are aligned, direction. We're aligned in direction. We're aligned in belief in this as the direction. And we are aligned in the belief that even though the three of us are very different from each other, we have strengths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and that's very important to respect uh, with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, any workers, I think uh, you as a creative especially, mm. will probably have 20 other ideas in the background. Oh my god, yeah. Uh, as we are speaking right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what, what are some of the criteria uh, you choose when you decided to commit uh, an idea uh, next? Like, what's the next idea to commit uh, after 20? What are some of the criteria you look at? What ideas I'll commit to? Yeah, correct. Oh. So the criteria is the commitment. Oh, well, I guess the, the criteria will be is it um, 
is it in alignment with the purpose of what we want to do, right? And the purpose is, at least for the Thought Collective specifically, yeah. it's about the purpose of building up Singapore, right? Uh, building up a generation of thought leaders, whether it's young people or people in the public, private and people sector. Mm -hmm. um, that's what we care about, mm -hmm. uh, about strengthening the society. So it has to be aligned in purpose. And then it has to make sense for us. It has to be make financial, financial sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it has to be sustainable. Mm -hmm. uh, we, it should not burn us out as mm. an organization to do it. I think and every idea is sort of like, there's a re revenue model behind. There has to be. Yeah, okay. It has to be. And, and, if, and if it entails us taking a financial hit, it has to make strategic sense for us. Mm. Yeah, there is a reason why we are willing to do this like at a non-profit rate. And I think very rarely do you find something of that. Now. Oh, mm. okay. Mm. Moving to your latest uh, embankment as a NMP. Yes. Um, Maybe you want to educate a little bit of the to the listeners and me too. <laughs> so I, I interviewed Loretta and I was like, yeah. NMP, what is that? So uh, what are the roles actually? Maybe just start with that. Uh, the role of an NMP is you are there to add diversity of voice to parliament, right? And because you are non-political, you don't belong to a political party, then technically you are free uh, to express... Uh, yeah, to talk about issues or express a point of view that uh, may not come out from, uh, from other parliamentarians. So, so that, I think, is the primary responsibility of an NMP, right? uh, to highlight issues that may not normally come up. Like. And hmm. does every MMP have a different like, sector or sub-niche uh, or culture? Yeah. Okay, so, so technically... Like I, I know how people write about it. It sounds as if there must be one yeah, sports like it's, NMP. Yeah, right? it, it's not like that. Although I'm, I'm sure the committee <laughs> will choose. try and pick a diverse mm -hmm. range. But there is no like one spot for a this and one spot for a that. Although that seems to be how it's coming out. Like, yeah. Right? Um, it, names are put up by different sectors. Mm -hmm. And then an and, and individual can own self go and put in their name if they so oh, oh. wished. Okay. Right, that, that is an option for every citizen of Singapore, right? right? And, and, and some do, do, do that. Like you can go and submit your application, uh, you know, and, and it's up to the committee to select uh, who they call in for an interview. Mm -hmm. And then at the interview process, they will... Uh, it, it's quite an intimidating oh, panel. Um, is it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, No, no, no. It, no, it's, more. It's, it's quite big. Yeah. Oh, okay. and, and, and it's... Uh, uh, it, we will have... Uh, parliamentarians from both sides of the house. Right. Yeah. So they will ask you whatever. It's like a massive like interview, uh, like a scholarship interview. More, more. <laughs> it, it, it's quite scary. Uh, then after that, they will let you know whether you're an NMP. So, so that's the process. Oh, okay. Yeah, as far as I've experienced. Yeah. <laughs> and then why did you decide to take it up? Not like you have not enough things to do. Oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> um, I, because uh, someone told me that my name was put up by oh, okay. as the sector and asked if I was willing to pursue it mm -hmm. uh, because you know you even if they put up your name you still have to say like yeah sure you know yeah, okay. <laughs> they can't like I nominate you whether you like it or not you know uh, so um, yeah I, I thought about it my, my first instinct was to say no because I have a very full plate of things to do um, but when I dug down deeper about the why right behind my no I realised that the why was um, it had a lot more to do with me not wanting to uh, 
me not wanting to be more public. Mm. Yeah, because the, the, the stakes are high for anyone who sits in parliament, mm-hmm. right? Once you're in there, uh, yeah, once you're in there, like, uh, yeah, you're just so much more visible. Mm-hmm. And every word that you say, every action that you take is going to be scrutinized. Unless you decide to go super under the radar so that nobody even knows you exist, which kind of What's takes away the, the point. point? Correct. So it's like if you take up the role, it's there because you want to say things or do things and be noticed for it, mm. right? Because that's, that's what you're there for. And I realized I was not comfortable with the idea of putting myself up there. I mean, I had, I had some kind of public profile already and it was at a very comfortable level. You know, but I think once you're in parliament, it's a whole different ballgame because now, like, all the trolls want to come out and, and like, tear apart whatever you want to say, lah, unless you stay very under the radar. Um, yeah, so I realized if my why was I don't want to be in an uncomfortable space and be judged for what I say, then that told me that's why you need to say yes. Because that's not a good reason to say no. Yeah, because if my other greater why is I care about impact, I care about these issues that we talk about in school, then it's really hypocritical for me to talk to kids about taking initiative and all that. And then I say no to the first opportunity to come. And one of the biggest, most impactful. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 yeah. And having to say that the reason is because I didn't want to be trolled online. You know, that's a stupid response. <laughs> right? And yeah, so that's why I said yes. Um, yeah, even though... I had also a lot of misgivings about, uh, am I right for this role? Who am I to be this? Surely the other people are better than me. Yeah, so I said yes because I felt that I think it's an opportunity. Yeah. And, and I'll take it up and make the best out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think it echoes the same thing uh, what I read this guy called Derek Silvers, um, who say, you know, if you want to be useful, mm. you just, you got to go into the public. Yes. Yes. And yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the more public you are, the more useful you are. Mm. And, well, like, are there any, how, how much time do, does the NMP need to? Uh, yeah, um, your commitment is um, you just have to be at the monthly parliamentary sessions. Okay. Um, and then you pretty much make of it what you will. No one's going to spot check you and count how many hours you spend doing research or talking to stakeholders or whatever. They assume that if you took up the position, it's because you want to make some kind of difference or mm. speak on issue. So you will invest whatever time you want uh, to, to research that. Mm. It sounds like a very volunteer uh, kind of, of. Kind of. A volunteer, but with a, a huge panel uh, that... That, that will choose you. Like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and you do get you do get an NMP allowance. Yeah. You do? You do, you do. You do. Okay. It, it's, a, it's like a small, decent-sized allowance like, for, for the work that you do. Like. Enough? Huh? Uh, it's Fun. probably enough to cover a legal assistant. Oh, okay. Like, just hire one research assistant. Right. Oh, that, that's, that's, that's important. <laughs> yes, that's important. <laughs> yes. Um, so, coming down, um, there's a famous quote by Mark Twain which is whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. <laughs> okay. Are there any views you had held strongly hmm. that have changed over the course of your life? Well, you mentioned about the GP. Any views that I held strongly? Well, I mean, I mean this is a tough question. If you want time, we can not, come back to it later. I can't really think offhand. Yeah. Hmm. Now that you're a mom and owning a collection of mm. businesses, mm. 
How do you structure your time? Uh, how do I structure my time? Well, uh, honestly, I spend a lot more time at work than I do at home. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just part of the working mom thing. Uh, yeah, I, I try to spend mornings and nights with my kid and then the rest of my day is work. I try not to work on weekends as much as possible and I only agree to weekend appointments if I really, really have to. Yeah. Well, how do you see yourself uh, as a creative director in the Talk Collective? What is your role as a creative director? Uh, I, I take care of uh, I take care of a lot of the strategic comms. Uh, yeah, the the branding, the the story of it, updating it, that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, at, at the Talk Collective, we we sort of take on like brand specific roles as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my portfolio for next year is looking at a lot in our training for corporate training. Oh, corporate training. Yeah, corporate training. So that's under School of Thought, or uh, that's under the Thought Collective. The Thought Collective. Okay. Yeah. So so that is something we're going into a lot more strongly. Yeah. And I think that that's what also makes us different. So we teach quite a spectrum. Yeah. And so we can bring insights from both. Mm. Yeah. So the adult leaders love to know what's going on among. Oh no, youth. that's great. Yeah. And then the youth also should know about what's going on among adult leaders. Yes. Yeah, so, so we have that breadth of uh, insights. Mm-hmm. So that's what makes us unusual. Any uh, new or upcoming initiative or projects that you want to share? Oh God, too many. Too many? <laughs> yeah, best not to get into it. Okay, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> or we can look forward to anything you want to just so people uh, can... Well, I, I, I think, I guess one platform is Brave New World. Right. So... Um, a lot of our alumni, the first 18-year-olds that we taught are actually in their late 20s to 30s right now. That, oh, that's how yes. long we've been teaching Good Grief, right? Uh, so we actually created uh, Brave New World, which is a learning platform. Uh, yep. So we will officially launch it next year where you can learn as an individual through us. So we run very alternative uh, work skills classes. So work oh. skills classes sounds like the most boring thing on earth. But we run very alternative approach to it. Just, just like how we do tuition. Okay. Yeah, so it's tuition for adults. Lah. Yeah. Yeah. So because all the, corp- the corporate training that we do, you need like a, a, an organization to sort of pay for the training program that yeah. happens in organizations. Yeah. Uh, but there wasn't any way for individuals to come and choose to learn. So that's why we created Brave New World. So um, like we are running, I run a writing class, for example. Uh, called Writing for Impact. So it's anyone who wants to develop their voice to impact uh, your organizations or whatever. So that's something that's offered on Brave New World. Right. We have this bizarre like story discovery through dance class, which was oh. very popular. Wow. Where you, even if you're a noob at dancing, you come to dance so that you can reflect on what are the emotional blocks mm. that are within you that are stopping you from achieving influence elsewhere in your life. But yeah. dance is a very powerful medium for for realizing what are your blocks. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, so that's what I mean by kind of a bit it's hard radical to, yeah, our approach to work skill development. Yeah. So it's not boring lectures. <laughs> okay, some yeah. uh, quick questions, but you don't need to answer quick. Are sure. there any um, books or documentary that you'd like to recommend? Oh, uh, well, Man's Search for Meaning by Victor, Victor Frankl, Frankl is an excellent book that everyone should read so that they will stop complaining great, about great, life. Great, great, great book. Yes. Mm. Uh, anything else? No, I'll, I'll okay. just take that. Okay. Um, what have you bought recently under a hundred 
that have impacted you the most? Oh, anything from Daiso. <laughs> Daiso is fabulous. Um, advice, okay, if your 60-year-old self would appear right now, like, poof, what advice, yeah, what advice would uh, she be giving you? I have no idea. <laughs> what advice would she be giving me? I don't know. She'll probably be saying, like, uh, enjoy your youth. Enjoy your youth. Don't be, don't, don't be too quick to get old. Yeah, enjoy your days. She'll probably tell me to spend time with my child. <laughs> when you think of the word successful, um, who came into your mind and why? Uh, no particular person comes to mind. I think anyone who manages to die satisfied is successful. Um, are there any routines or habits that you find important? Mm, coffee in the morning and reading stories to my child morning and night. Yes. What's some of the most common misconception about you or your work? Uh, that I know how to handle everything and that I'm an expert at everything. No, I'm not. There's much more for me to learn. <laughs> any say or stays or do uh, for the audience? Says or do as well. Or question? Or... No, I would say get curious about what you're willing to stake your life on. And when you find it, live it out because you never know when you're going to die. Last question. Where can people mm. find you, your projects, on the interwebs? Uh, you can look up uh, the Thought Collective on our Facebook. You can join us there. That's where we normally let everyone know what's going on. Uh, you can check out our website, www.thethoughtcollective.com.sg. Uh, that gives you a truncated version of what we do. Mm. Cool. We're done. Okay. Thank you. Cool. Hey, what's up, people? It is over. So I just want to say a big thank you for everybody who have stayed throughout the episode. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I enjoy the conversation. And as usual, all show notes, links, books can be found on the website, brianvictor.com. If you have any misfits you'd like to hear from, feel free to drop me an email. And in upcoming weeks, we have the chef owner of, you ready? Artichoke, Bird Bird, and Nana Pop. That is right. It's going to be so good. So stay tuned. If you guys want to get updated on the latest upcoming episode and articles, you can go up to uh, the website and sign up for the mailing list. Um, and yeah, I hope you guys have a fantastic week ahead. Mm-hmm.